There is no escape, since at the end my body will be utterly destroyed. This hand I love as I have loved a friend, this body I tended, wept with, and enjoyed, since there is no escape even for me, who love life with a love too sharp to bear, the scent of orchards in the rain, the sea, and hours alone too still and sure for prayer, since darkness waits for me, then all the more let me go down as waves sweep to the shore, for in pride, and let me sing with my last breath. In these few hours of light I lift my head. Life is my lover, I shall leave the dead, if there is any way to baffle death. Sarah Teasdale, Since There Is No Escape. This is my body, and I live in it. It's 29 and 12 months old. It's changed a lot since it was new It's done stuff it wasn't built to do I often try to fill it up with wine And the weirdest thing about it is I spend so much time hating it But it never says a bad word about me This is my body and it's fine It's where I spend the vast majority of my time It's not perfect, but it's mine It's not perfect This is my brain and I live in it It's made of love And bad song lyrics It's tucked away behind my eyes Where all my fucked up thoughts can hide Cause God forbid I hurt somebody And the weirdest thing about a mind Is that every answer that you find is the basis of a brand new cliche This is my brain and it's fine It's where I spend the vast majority of my time It's not perfect but it's mine It's not perfect but it's mine It's not perfect I'm not quite sure I've worked out how to work it It's not perfect But it's mine Before we return to the guard tower, to Ventress leaving on her own for the first time, let us drift sideways into J.G. Ballard and his essay, Which Way to Inner Space, published in New World, 1962. Quote, One unfortunate byproduct of the Russian
Russian-American space race is likely to be an even closer identification, in the mind of the general public, of science fiction with the rocket ships and ray guns of Buck Rogers. If science fiction ever had a chance of escaping this identification, from which most of its present ills derive, that chance will soon be gone, and the successful landing of a manned vehicle on the moon will fix this image conclusively. Instead of greeting the appearance of the space-suited hero with a deep groan, most general readers will be disappointed if the standard paraphernalia of robot brains and hyperdrives is not present, just as more cinema-goers are bored stiff if a western doesn't contain at least one major gun battle. A few westerns without guns have been attempted, but they seem to turn into dog and timberland stories. And as a reader of science fiction, one of my fears is that unless the medium drastically reinvigorates itself in the near future, the serious fringe material at present its only justification will be relegated to the same limbo occupied by other withering literary forms, such as the ghost and detective stories. There are several reasons why I believe space fiction can no longer provide the main wellspring of ideas for SF. Firstly, the bulk of it is invariably juvenile, though this is not entirely the fault of the writers. Mort Saul has referred to the missile testing site at Cape Canaveral as Disneyland East, and like it or not, this sums up the attitude of most people towards science fiction, and underlines the narrow imaginative limits imposed by the background of rocket ships and planet hopping. A poet such as Ray Bradbury can accept the current magazine conventions and transform even so hackneyed a subject as Mars into an enthralling private world, but science fiction can't rely for its survival on the continued emergence of writers of Bradbury's caliber. The degree of interest in the rocket and planet story, with its confined physical and psychological dimensions and its limited human relationships, is so slight as to make a self-sufficient fictional form based on it almost impossible. If anything, however, the success of the manned satellites will only tend to establish the limited psychological experience of their crews, on the whole accurately anticipated, though unintentionally, by SF writers, as the model of those to be found in science fiction. Visually, of course, nothing can equal space fiction for its vast perspectives and cold beauty, as any SF film or comic strip demonstrates, but a literary form requires more complex ideas to sustain it. The spaceship simply doesn't provide these. Curiously enough, in the light of the present roster of astronauts, the one authentic element in old-style space opera is its wooden, one-dimensional dialogue. But if one can't altogether blame Commander Shepard for his boy what a ride, Major Titov's dreamless sleep after the first night in space was the biggest letdown since the fall of Icarus. How many SF writers must wish they had been writing his script? But my real objection to the central role now occupied by the space story is that its appeal is too narrow. Unlike the Western, science fiction can't rely for its existence upon the casual intermittent pleasure it may give to a wide non-specialist audience if it is to hold its ground and continue to develop. As with most specialized media, it needs a faithful and discriminating audience who will go to it for specific pleasures, similar to the audience for abstract painting or serial music. The old guard space opera fans, although they probably form the solid backbone of present SF readership, won't be able to keep the medium alive on their own. Like most purists, they prefer their diet unchanged, and unless SF evolves, sooner or later, other media are going to step in and take away its main distinction, the right to be the shop window of tomorrow. Too often recently, when I've wanted to stimulate my imagination, I've found myself turning to music or painting rather than to science fiction, and surely this is the chief thing wrong with it at present. To attract a critical readership, science fiction needs to alter completely its present content and approach. Magazine SF was born in the 1930s, and like the pseudo-streamlined architecture of the 30s, it is beginning to look old-fashioned to the general reader. It's not simply that time travel, psionics, and teleporting which have nothing to do with science anyway and are so breathtaking in their implications that they require genius to do them justice, date science fiction. 
The general reader is intelligent enough to realize that the majority of the stories are based on the most minor variations on these themes, rather than on any fresh imaginative leaps. Historically, this type of virtuosity is a sure sign of decline, and it may well be that the real role science fiction has to play is that of a minor eclectic pastime, its few magazines sustained by opportunist editorial swerves after the latest popular science fad. Rejecting this view, however, and believing that SF has a continuing and expanding role as an imaginative interpreter of the future, how can one find a new wellspring of ideas? First, I think science fiction should turn its back on space, on interstellar travel, extraterrestrial life forms, galactic wars, and the overlap of these ideas that spreads across the margins of nine-tenths of magazine SF. Great writer though he was, H.G. Wells has had a disastrous influence on the subsequent course of science fiction. Not only did he provide it with a repertory of ideas that have virtually monopolized the medium for the last 50 years, but he established the conventions of its style and form, with its simple plots, journalistic narrative, and standard range of situation and character. It is these, whether they realize it or not, that SF readers are so bored with now, and which are beginning to look increasingly outdated by comparison with the developments in other literary fields. I've often wondered why SF shows so little of the experimental enthusiasm which has characterized painting, music, and the cinema the last four or five decades, particularly as these have become wholeheartedly speculative, more and more concerned with the creation of new states of mind, constructing fresh symbols and languages where the old cease to be valid. Similarly, I think science fiction must jettison its present narrative forms and plots. Most of these are far too explicit to express any subtle interplay of character and theme. Devices such as time travel and telepathy, for example, save the writer the trouble of describing the interrelationships of time and space indirectly, and by a curious paradox they prevent him from using his imagination at all, giving him very little true freedom of movement within the narrow limits set by the device. The biggest developments of the immediate future will take place not on the moon or Mars, but on Earth, and it is inner space, not outer, that needs to be explored. The only true alien planet is Earth. In the past, the scientific bias of SF had been towards the physical sciences, rocketry, electronics, cybernetics, and the emphasis should switch to the biological sciences. Accuracy, that last refuge of the unimaginative, doesn't matter a hoot. What we need is not science fact, but more science fiction, and the introduction of so-called science fact articles is merely an attempt to dress up the old Buck Rogers material in more respectable garb. More precisely, I'd like to see SF becoming abstract and cool, inventing fresh situations and contexts that illustrated themes obliquely. For example, instead of treating time like a sort of glorified, scenic railway, I'd like to see it used for what it is, one of the perspectives of the personality, and the elaboration of concepts such as the time zone, deep time, and archaeopsychic time. I'd like to see more psycho-literary ideas, more metabiological and metachemical concepts, private time systems, synthetic psychologies, and space-times. More of the somber half-worlds one glimpses in the paintings of schizophrenics. All in all, a complete speculative poetry and fantasy of science. I firmly believe that only science fiction is fully equipped to become the literature of tomorrow, and that it is the only medium with an adequate vocabulary of ideas and situations. By and large, the standards it sets for itself are higher than those of any other specialist literary genre. And from now on, I think... Most of the hard work will fall not on the writer and editor, but on the readers. The onus is on them to accept a more oblique narrative style, understated themes, private symbols, and vocabularies. The first true SF story, and one I intend to write myself if no one else will, 
is about a man with amnesia lying on a beach and looking at a rusty bicycle wheel, trying to work out the absolute essence of the relationship between them. If this sounds offbeat and abstract, so much the better, for science fiction could use a big dose of the experimental. And if it sounds boring, well, at least it will be a new kind of boredom. As a final text, I'm reminded of the diving suit in which Salvador Dali delivered a lecture some years ago in London. The workman sent along to supervise the suit asked how deep Dolly proposed to descend, and with a flourish the maestro exclaimed, To the unconscious. To which the workman replied sagely, I'm afraid we don't go down that deep. Five minutes later, sure enough, Dali nearly suffocated inside the helmet. It is that inner spacesuit which is still needed, and it is up to science fiction to build it. And These five women, now four, entered an uncanny geography, but the primary metaphor is obvious. Shepard lost her daughter, Lena ruined her marriage and lost her husband, Thornson is a recovering alcoholic, Raddick has, or had, a habit of self-injury, Ventress, though we do not know it yet in the film, has terminal cancer. They entered an unknown from which they might not return, because their lives already have clear limits. They faced, and are facing, their mortality. It goes deeper than this, deeper than the explicit, deliberate self-destruction suggested by Ventress in the previous scene, at least for Lena. This will come up more as the film continues, but the short version is that she is not searching for her husband or a way to save him. She is searching for redemption and a way to save herself. We are close on Lena, Ventress, blurry behind her, still transferring items from Shepard's pack to her own. She was just cut off mid-sentence, announcing, I'm going to get to the lighthouse. In the script, she adds, but I'm not going to pretend it's for a mission. It's because I want to know what's inside. In the film, as Ventress continues, still blurry, Lena slowly turns to look back toward her. Dr. Ventress continued, And I'm fine going on my own. You just need to decide. Camera pulls focus to Ventress as she slings her pack over one shoulder. Dr. Ventress continued, Whether you're coming with me or not. Dr. Ventress grabs her rifle off the cabinet, Cut to a new angle, second seven, the interior width of the tower. Ventress in those folding chairs at left, Thorns in its center, Raddick right of center, Lena out of frame to the right. Ventress heads to the right, and as she reaches the door, angle on guard tower from outside, second ten, as Ventress exits. This is the actual guard tower at the closed RAF bentwaters, or a very good reproduction, but with an overcast sky and a little lens flare added in post. Ventress steps loudly past Lena and around the corner of the tower to the stairs on the left. Lena turns and watches her. Second 16 cut to inside the tower. Close on Shepard's stuffed bear keychain as Raddick picks it up from the floor. Camera rises with the keychain to Raddick. Beat. Raddick. It's like she hasn't even noticed that Shepard is dead. 
Smash cut Anglo and Radigan Thornton. In the script, Thornton simply says, She's crazy. In the film, as Radic crosses in front of her, Thornton adds, She's a crazy old bitch. She pauses and looks to the right of camera where Lena stands out of frame. As she speaks, she steps toward Lena. Thornton continued, You know, thanks, thanks for the fucking, fucking backup, backup Lena. Lena. In the film, she calls her Lena. In the script, she calls her Karen's. Angle on Lena, turning abruptly and stepping in from the doorway. Lena, I didn't, I didn't realize, realize there were sides. Thornton, yeah. yeah. Angle on Thornton. Thornton continued, Yeah, yeah there, there are sides. sides. Reverse, Lena hesitates. Lena, okay, then I, I agree with you. With you. We, we should, should go back. back. Reverse, Thornton looks relieved. She looks to the right where Radic is out of frame, then back to Lena, and as she speaks, she looks back and forth between them. Thornton. Good. Okay, great. great. There, there we go. go. Okay, so the three of us can back. Lena, off screen, interrupts. Hold, hold on a minute. minute. Beat. Lena, hold, hold on. on. Thornton already doesn't like this. Angle on Lena, second 41. Lena, continued. We, we should go, go back. back. Yes, yes, but it took us, what, six days, days to get, get here? here? And the, and the coast, coast is two days, two days away. away. And as and it, Shepherd, Shepherd said, Reverse. Lawrence does not like that Lena invokes Shepherd's name. Lena continued, When, when we, we get, get to the, the coast, coast, we can just, we can just follow, follow it until we hit the perimeter wall. wall. Second 57, angle on Radic, standing in the corner, her arms at her sides and slightly behind her. In the script, this is Thornton's line. In the film, it is Radic's. Radic, you're, you're saying, saying we, we get out by going, going deeper. deeper. Angle on Lena. Lena, yeah. And time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Annihilation. <laughs>